If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's best eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In January 1649, King Charles I lost his head and Britain embarked on an 11-year experiment with republicanism, now known as the Interregnum. In her new book, The Restless Republic, Britain Without a Crown, Anna Key explores this extraordinary period through the eyes of some of those who watched it unfold. Here, in conversation with Spencer Mizen, she reveals what life was like in the 1650s and why this decade would prove crucial in forging modern Britain. Anna, your new book, The Restless Republic, tells the story of the 11 years between the execution of King Charles I and the restoration of the monarchy in 1660 through the eyes of some of the people who watched these events unfold. Now, before digging further into that, I wonder if you could give our listeners a whistle-stop introduction to the 1650s, because... I guess it's a period that a lot of them won't know a great deal about. So I was wondering if you could just run through 
sort of the landmark events of this dramatic decade? Yes, gladly, because I think you're right, which is that it often gets skipped over. So it's a bit unfamiliar territory for for for, for lots of us, really. Um, so this is this decade is not the civil war. This is the crucial thing. It's the decade that comes after the civil war. So the civil war uh, is fought in the 1640s. It concludes at the end of the 1640s, and um, Charles I is executed, and that. Um, begins a period without a king, a, a, a republic of different sorts, which lasts quite neatly in terms of um, chronology, uh, almost exactly a decade, 11 years actually, until 1660. So it's um, it's a time of um, great change. And during those, th- those years are very associated in all of our minds with Oliver Cromwell. But the important thing to get is that he is only one of the significant figures of that time. Um, uh, he isn't responsible for uh, the, the revolution, which um, inv- you know leads to the execution of Charles I. He's he's number two of the army, and it's, he only becomes um, really the sort of main player in the middle of the decade. So uh, you can think of the decade in a couple of chunks, if you like. The period from 1649, when Charles I is executed, until 1653, when is is, is which is the period we sometimes call the Commonwealth, when there is no head of state. You know, Parliament is the sovereign body. This is in in England. And um, there's a council of state that runs the government and it has a kind of rotating chairmanship. So it's very, very different. Um, And then uh, from the back end of 1653 through to 1658, so five years, um, there's something called the Protectorate, which is a kind of modified version of that, where um, Oliver Cromwell is what's called Lord Protector, which isn't king, but it has some things that are in common with being a king. And he shares sovereignty um, with Parliament. And then you have a couple of years at the end where, uh, after his death, where essentially the whole changing series of things happen, um, none of which are very stable, which give way to the rest. So very, very kind of headline and and focusing on England in the first instance, those are the chunks that it breaks down to. You've written a feature on this period for the April issue of BBC History magazine. And in that, you begin by recounting an incident in which a London mob spots the lawyer, John Bradshaw, who presided over the trial of Charles I and cries, kill him, kill him, let us tear him to pieces, at which point Bradshaw is kind of forced to flee for his life. Now, this occurs barely a year after Charles I's execution in 1649. And to be honest, it doesn't paint a picture of a nation that's particularly at ease with itself or at peace of itself. So, I mean, what was the mood like across England at the dawn of what we now know as, as the interregnum? Yeah, it's a really, that's a really good question. I mean, um, that incident is is a good example of how the kind of official account of events which historians tend to get through, you know, the minutes of the Council of State and so on, uh, might give the impression that, you know, this is a new republic, we're all very clear that this is what we're doing, and, you know, we're busy instituting reforms of various sorts. Um, but then you get, you know, really clear evidence, but it tends to be quite, um, you know, quite sort of scattered of what the mood of the of, of other people is. Um, and it's clear that people, you know, are not welcoming uh, the execution of Charles I in the institution of a republic with open arms. First of all, it hadn't been done, as it were, according to any of the kind of conventional rules about how you change things. You know, Parliament had only voted for the execution of Charles I after half its members had been barred from 
uh, voting by the army. So, it, you know, even if you look at just like, as it were, the political nation, you know, it wasn't it, it wasn't the kind of considered view of everybody that this was the right time to make a big change. It was something that was forced through. But also, then, if you you get these you get these um, you get this sense of um, of what people on the ground think, and that that instance with John Bradshaw is a good example. Another one that's very interesting, which is that the Council of State were very very concerned about. Um, any kind of counter-revolutionary moves or about anyone trying to assassinate any of them. One of the people who'd been involved in the trial of Charles I was assassinated in the Low Countries in the weeks after the um, after the execution. And so there were lots of interrogations and of people who um, who are thought to be part of royalist plots or who are informers. And those are very revealing because you, it gives you, they, they recount, you know, somebody, somebody, an informer telling the Council of State what they overheard somebody saying in the pub. And, you know, there you get a real sense of what people are saying. So, for example, in one instance, also in relation to John Bradshaw, um, an informer tells actually Bradshaw himself, who's, who's, who's hearing, the, um, hearing this testimony, that he heard somebody in the pub saying he hated John Bradshaw so much for what he'd done in, in condemning the king that he wanted to boil him alive and feed his body to his dogs. And if the dogs wouldn't eat him, he would eat him himself because, you know, he was just so furious about it. So you get these little, you know, these little instances that give a sense of, in some cases, real fury about it. Um, uh, and I think, you know, that it wasn't universal, but I think there was a lot of disquiet for sure. So given this, given the, 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 the bitterness that pervaded the nation at the time, what, what, what was the new administration's principal priorities and challenges in those early years? And, and who were you, as you said earlier, Cromwell wasn't the main player at this point. Who were the main players? Okay, so there are a series of people who were at the fore in those early um, uh, early months and years of the the uh, rest of, of the um, uh, interregnum, and um, there are the people who are who are trying to govern uh, in London. So they're the members of the Council of State. Bradshaw, I've mentioned, is one of them. Bulstrode, Whitelock, there are a whole series of others, um, and then there are the, the and then there's the army because the the. To your question about what's the priority, the big, big priority is to secure the revolution. Because although the parliamentarians, as they call themselves, won the civil war in England, the civil war, um, you know, had not concluded yet in England. Uh, sorry, in Scotland and in Ireland. Um, and in fact, you know, there was real anger, understandably, in Scotland and Ireland that their king had been executed without any involvement from their parliaments or, you know, their. Um, their sort of you know political leaders. So um, so a massive army, the, the massive army that exists already because it was the army that had won the civil war, um, gets dispatched to try to um, gain control of um, Ireland and then Scotland. And that's what that's where Oliver Cromwell is. He's kind of, I mean, if you if you're thinking of Westminster as the stage, he's off stage. If you're thinking of Britain, he's very much you know in the to the fore. Um, so you've got two things going on. In, one, in, in London, the parliamentarians and the um, Council of State are trying to kind of make the changes that they said they're going to do, which is to do with reforming the church and, you know, doing things, reforming the law and all sorts of things. And then out in Scotland and Ireland, Cromwell um, and others are fighting, you know, bloody wars of conquest, if you like, um, in both those countries. And one of the real problems for the 
looking at the high politics, one of the real problems for the um, for the regime is when that army comes back, that uh, Cromwell and his officers are really disappointed that the that the parliamentarians haven't kind of done more, gone further. They feel they've sort of compromised, and and it begins a kind of falling out between the army and parliament, which is is the real source of um, instability during this decade. So did Cromwell believe that? the revolution wasn't radical enough. So he and his men come back from, you know, these famously um, famously destructive campaigns, particularly in Ireland, but also in Scotland, you know, f- you know bloodied and mud-covered, feeling that they were fighting for the thing that they all believed in, which is this new republic, a new godly way of doing things, um, you know, the a reform and a whole series of areas. And they come back and they see that all the parliamentarians who've been sort of sitting inside with their feet nice and dry have been saying, well, actually, it's not so easy to reform the law because actually there's some quite good reasons why, you know, it takes a long time for legal cases to go through. And, and actually, we're not sure we want to reform the church so radically. And they're, you know, they're just really, the Cromwell and the soldiers are, are you know, furious about this. Um, and it's not that one or other of them is right. You know, it's just that's just the challenges of big change. And um, I think those around Cromwell felt very disappointed. And I think he did, too. And in the end, you know, he famously expels what's called the rump parliament, the parliament that was um, in place, uh, you know, which which um, saw through the execution of Charles I saying, you know, you, the, those famous words about, you know, you sat too long for all the good you've done. So, yeah, that's that's the tension in the whole period. Now, I wanted to talk about two of the protagonists in your book. The, the, the first is a man who went by the name of Marshamon Nedham. Have I pronounced that correctly? Well, he's sometimes called Nedham, sometimes called Needham. Marchmont Needham, I, I tend to call him, but yeah, either. And you describe him as an irrepressible newspaper man and a, a puppet master of propaganda. And now, as you also point out, the 1650s saw an explosion of newspaper and of the avail- newspapers and of the availability of newspapers and also a surge in the in the power of propaganda to shape public opinion so given this how, how important a figure was was he in 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 the 1650s yeah so he's one of as you say he's one of the my protagonists in my in my book and my it isn't my contention that the people that i use uh, who are my protagonists are the ones that make the most difference in the period. It's just that they give us different vantage points on things. But I mean, I think that Marchmont Needham is very important uh, because he, um, as you say, he he is the person who, um, after a very um, circuitous route where he keeps changing sides, usually at the cr- critical moment to end up on the wrong side, um, he um, gets the position as editor of a new um, sort of regime-sponsored newspaper. Um, and um, the crucial thing really about him is that he's so good at it because uh, newspapers, you know, are a completely new phenomenon of this generation. You know, Marchmont Needham's father's generation, you know, would never have seen a newspaper. They come into being just before the Civil War and the Civil War puts a kind of, you know, douses them with petrol in terms of, ha- you know, the sort of flame suddenly roar of um, appetite for this stuff. So um, he uh, said, so, so this is a kind of whole new uh, medium, um, which can be used to uh, influence the way that people think, as well as to inform them. And, and, and Needham um, puts a proposition to the Council of State, who's got a real 
issue on its hands because just as we were talking about, you know, it's not not universally popular. It's not even popular with most people. Plus the the, the collateral damage and the and the terrible stories of the the war in um, Ireland and and fighting in Scotland is you know is is also fueling people's kind of discomfort with with the whole thing. So Marchmont Needham puts to the Council of State the idea: let give me the job of producing a newspaper for you, and I will, you know, I will delight and engage and kind of cajole everybody into realizing what a great thing the Republic is. And he's brilliant at it because, you know, a lot of, if anyone's ever read any 17th century prose, read anything, he read Paradise Lost or something. I mean, it's pretty hard work. You know, the language is quite heavy. The sentences are incredibly long. And, you know, you've really got to concentrate to make sense of it. Um, and, and, and Needham um, wrote in this short, sparky, lively, funny prose with lots of kind of jokes and um, satire, uh, but about serious things. And his newspaper became the kind of absolutely indispensable, you know, um, organ of news of that decade right across Britain um, and also uh, was read very widely in Europe. And of course, that gave him tremendous opportunities to kind of guide public opinion um, which he did, he, which he did very effectively. So it's the it's the birth of a whole new form of communication, um, and with it, the opportunity is very familiar to us now of being able to influence public opinion through a kind of editorial line. I wonder if you could also introduce us to Charlotte Stanley, Countess of Derby, who was a an arch royalist and who oversaw the defence of what you, what you describe as virtually the last Stuart outpost in the in the British Isles. I mean, how much of a thorn in the side of the new Republican administration did she prove? Yes, so she is is a fascinating figure. And, you know, one of the things that's so interesting about this whole period is the um, extent to which women actually, in, at, you know, at all levels of um, society, have a kind of whole different sphere of activity for lots of reasons. Um, Charlotte Stanley is, was right at the top of the social structure. She was um, a French woman by birth, married to the Earl of Derby. And um, she uh, was responsible for holding the Isle of Man um, right through until October 1651. So, you know, this is two and a half years after the um, execution of Charles I. Um, and she was absolutely <laughs> kind of indomitable. She was completely committed to, you know, holding that island and dying by the sword if that was what was involved out of loyalty to, to the Stuarts. Not because she actually particularly, you know, was attached to Charles I or Henrietta Maria. She wasn't and quite disapproved of them for various reasons. But she came from a Huguenot family, you know, a Protest, French Protestant family um, that had been fighting for sort of religious um views and principles for generations and she carried that with her so she her husband went off to join Charles II when he famously did his sort of surge down into Scotland to try and retake the kingdom which ended at the Battle of Worcester and he then went on the run and you know hid in Boscobel Wood as, as we all know the story and she her husband was alongside him um, in that escapade um, actually introduced him to the man who who had the oak tree but um, she was standing alone holding the Isle of Man where they had been sheltering loads of royalists. So they had said, come and join us, anyone who's a royalist who, who, who wants you know, a place to, to wait for an invasion, come and join us. And of course, the Isle of Man geographically is in the perfect spot because it's right in the middle between England, Scotland and, um, uh, 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 and um, Ireland. So from the point of view of being a jumping off point. 
Um, and there were various attempts to try and get her to surrender. And, you know, each one she responded to with tremendous disdain. And she famously tore up the terms of surrender at a previous standoff, you know, in front of the besieging army and said she'd rather see her family and children, but, you know, consumed by flames rather than give up. So she was uh, so she was important because that was an important sort of military um, front, if you like, but also her... Uh, resilience. I mean, it's, you know, we, we're familiar, aren't we, right now, hearing those extraordinary stories from Ukraine with the power of somebody's um, determination to to hold something even in the face of apparently um, impossible odds. So she was, she was very um, important for as somebody who was kind of rallying the royalist cause, even though in the end, the island was captured. Um, but she was also hugely um, demonised by the um, by the press and by others in in on the kind of Puritan side as being a whore of Babylon and you know monstrous uh, person. Um, but it just goes to show you know how how the, the tremendous role that that women played and uh, on a whole series of fronts and how um, the you know the the, the battles went on in in reality and also in you know in other forms in in press and in in um, plotting long after the republic had taken hold still to come on the history extra podcast and people men start wearing wigs women start wearing these cosmetic patches that we think of now people are reading the newspapers so to me one of the things that's so interesting about it is the sheer kind of energy of the age We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. 
Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. So we've got the, the Countess of Derby, but what about the, the, the quote-unquote ordinary people? Did you, did we get a sense of how daily life changed for the man and the woman in the street between 1649 and 1660? Did, did the radical changes to Parliament, to the structure of church, the Church of England, I mean, did, they, did they have a, an impact on the ground level, as it were? Yeah, I think it did, but it's you know that's exactly really one of the things that I wanted to think about, and, and the book is about because you know we can all you know, it's very interesting, and the book covers the the high politics, but the question is to what extent is that you know a Westminster bubble, and to what extent does it really change the lives of individual people? So, um, uh, and the answer is that the the change was I think less profound in uh, a rural parish than it was you know, if you were watching Charles I being executed in Whitehall. But it was nonetheless, it did really manifest itself in some pretty major ways. The first one of which is because the um, because the Church of England was radically reformed in the 1640s, really be- specifically because that was the deal that the Scots drove to join the parliamentarians in fighting Charles I, that the, 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 the Church of England be radically reformed along the lines of the Church of Scotland. And so the the... Uh, as well as the physical environment of churches, which of course were absolutely like the daily social and um, uh, spiritual um, environment which everybody was in, um, were completely changed with all the um, decorations and ornaments being stripped out, um, the the rearrangement of the internal spaces and so on. But also the Book of Common Prayer was abolished. And this, it's a sort of, you have to get your head around this a bit because um, essentially the way that people's lives were the kind of um, were organised in the sort of um, rhythm of the year, whether it was Christmas or May Day or Michaelmas or Candlemas, were all to do with the church calendar. And there would be festivals, and um, you know there would be rituals that were performed, and so on. And 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 the reformation, the, the, the sort of reformation, and it was a kind of second reformation of the church, meant that all that stuff went. So so instead, so all the things that you, would have been the rhythm of your life. Um, were suddenly gone, and that, because the idea was that only things which were in the Bible should inform the way that churches worked. And churches, you know, the Bible makes no mention of what you do on Christmas Day. You know, it's it's it's, it's the Sabbath that's the point. So so people's sort of day to day lives were were really different because all of that stuff was part of the 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 the, the, the existence of people in every parish and, and and family life and so on. The other thing that changes is suddenly central government becomes a huge part of people's lives, which had never happened before. I mean, in the in the 17th century and all the times before then, in summary, a government, as we would understand it now, was almost entirely done at a local level. You know, there wasn't there wasn't income tax. There wasn't, you know, a national system of health or anything like that. It was really about your um, the local justices of the peace who dispensed justice and oversaw the provision for the poor and everything in your local area. And suddenly that the community of people who did that completely changed because all the people who'd fought for Charles I or who'd been involved as royalists, who tended to be the kind of old families that always had those positions, were no longer eligible to stand. So in your own environment, that was a big change. And then the other thing was there was a massive um, 
a massive standing army. And from the mid-1650s, when this, there's a sort of further layer, military layer that's set up, which is this thing called the Major Generals, which is a kind of military government of the nation done. England is divided into a series of, of territories, and each one has a Major General and a big militia who go around and ensure moral reform. So at any point... Someone could, you know, in the middle of the night, which did happen quite a lot, you know, there could be terrible thundering on your door and a whole lot of soldiers could turn up and turn your house upside down to find whether or not, you know, you had evidence that you were still following the Book of Common Prayer or you had a, you know, you had a minister who was, or a priest of some description who was following the old ways in your midst. Um, so it was a really invasive of people's lives in a way that was very unfamiliar. Now, you also argue that, that, that the 1650s was in many ways, the, the, the decade that forged modern Britain, that the disputes and the uh, disruptions of the decade supercharged uh, things like the scientific revolution and Britain's dramatic international expansionism over the following centuries. I mean, what, why, why was that the case? Why was, why was the 1650s so important in shaping modern Britain? I think the thing is that when you have a period of great change and... and um, uh, and of great instability, um, it means that lots of the, the 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 absolutely sort of rigid ways of doing things historically get get shaken, get thrown up. So on the one hand, if you're going to execute the king, um, uh, which is a totally unthinkable thing from the point of view of anything that happened in the past, and say we're a republic, suddenly it throws open the question, well, what sort of regime are you going to have instead? And that immediately prompts loads of conversations about, oh, well, should it be this format? Should we do it like that? And you know, So, so that opens up a whole world of kind of un- thoughts that no one had been thinking um, until then. Then you add into that great sort of um, change in terms of who is doing what. So, for example, when it comes to academia, um, in order to hold, continue to hold your position in in lots of cases as an academic, as a, a professor of you know, um, arithmetic at Oxford or, or whatever it was, you had to sign a pledge of loyalty to the new regime. And lots of people didn't. They refused to do it. So suddenly you get all these vacancies and lots of much more junior people get suddenly promoted because, you know, there's all these gaps in the establishment. So that immediately kind of um, sort of hastens on um the thinking of a whole new generation, which in terms of science was being very influenced by big shifts that were going on, you know, internationally in terms of, you know, understanding of the world and really a challenge uh, to a permanent challenge to the kind of ancient, there are only four elements kind of way of understanding um, the universe. Um, And then you also get other things which um, mean that the opportunities to, to share new ideas and, um, uh, kind of cut new turf uh, are made possible because the the rigid um the, the rigid sort of control if you like of 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 ways of doing things that existed before is shifted so the church of england is is radically reformed um and um new non-church of england type ways of worshipping are allowed to a certain extent what we would now call nonconformists, Baptists and so on, are allowed to worship. So that suddenly means there's a kind of much greater opportunity to do things differently, to say, well, is this, you know, maybe, maybe there are other ways of, of, of reaching God. Um, and because censorship breaks down for a chunk of time during the 1640s and, and the cat is out of the bag with that, just the kind of sheer volume of print and uh, that people are reading with with news of what's happening elsewhere is something that suddenly starts to kind of electrify the transmission of 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 ideas and and aspirations 
And the last thing I'd say is that is that there's a massive expansion of the state during this time because in order to to hold an army, you've got to have loads more money to pay them all because there'd never been a standing army before, which means you have to have much greater taxation. So suddenly there's a kind of um, the state has resources it had never had before, and when Charles II is restored, there's nothing in it for him and his contemporaries to sort of revert to the status quo before, because it's great to have all those resources. You can do things, you can send, you know, you can send ships around the world and you can fight wars and you can, you know, um, invest in things. So it, so for all those reasons um, that, you know, and that some of these things, you know, that not all these things are things that we would look back and think, oh, well, that was great, but they certainly were changes that would have real consequences long-term. Now, as you, as you just mentioned, uh, the interregnum came to an end in 1660 with the restoration of uh, Charles II to the throne. But, I, mean, I mean, why did Britain's 11-year experiment with republicanism fail? I mean, do you, do you, can you see a scenario in which it may have succeeded? Yeah, I think I, I, think I, I can see a scenario in which it would have succeeded. I think it was always inherently deeply unstable because, because, it's, because essentially a military coup had begun it. You know that business of the, the 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 of Parliament being purged, the MPs being being physically barred from entering at the crucial point where they essentially make the decision to to, to end the monarchy, would was built in a flaw to the whole thing that was very difficult ever to get beyond. However, I do think that by the time you get to the middle of the sixteen fifties, um, there there was a good chance it could have lasted because. Actually, um, not least because there'd been such a long and um, destructive war, people weren't longing to start arguing and fighting again. There was there was a lot in it for people to say, okay, we know we might not like how that happened, but frankly, you know, everything's calmed down, and can we just get on? And you know, rather than starting it all up again, Um, uh, but it needed it needed real skill. It needed somebody or a group of people in charge who 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 were pursuing a kind of let's 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 um, let's reconcile and let's move on. Let's have you know peace and reconciliation. And the trouble was that that really wasn't there. Um, I mean, I think Oliver Cromwell, you know, because his he was so driven by by trying to divine what God's purpose was. He, you know, his his focus on stability and entrenching the regime was was never complete. You know, he would he could easily be blown off that by a sense that God wanted him to do more moral reform. Um, and had he when he so when he died, you know, that was the moment of either it was going to be a catastrophe or there would be some kind of um stability that would come out of that. I, I think personally he had two sons. Uh, Richard Cromwell, who was the older one, and Henry Cromwell, who was his second son. And Henry Cromwell was a really capable, remarkable person, a politician and a soldier, who um, I think had he been Oliver Cromwell's successor, I think it's perfectly possible the whole thing, you know, could have lasted indefinitely. But interestingly, it was Richard because he was the eldest son. So it's a a wonderful kind of ironic... um, you know, fact that the, the this most traditional of of kind of conventions, that that of primogeniture, was the thing, not the ability, the, the relative ability of those two men that decided who would take the reins. And and um, you know, Richard wasn't, you know, he was he, he he couldn't handle it. It was a very difficult thing to handle, and he wasn't the man to do it. I mean, how did your opinion of Oliver Cromwell change during your research for the book? <laughs> yes, well, 
it it did change. I I had a I had a sense probably like lots of people of him as the kind of brutal um the brutal soldier, the, the you know the hammer of the Irish and so on. And he was he did you know he did unquestionably oversee really some horrific things. But um he was also He's also a remarkable person. He was a very, very kind father, devoted to his children, gentle with the, the, his family, kind to the women in his wider family. Um, he had tremendous humility. You know, he wasn't... Most people who um, get complete power or at least, you know, have the, more power than anyone else feather their own nests. And he really didn't, you know, he didn't accumulate lots of money. He didn't, he had a really intense sense all the time that God had his beady eye on him. And if he saw that Oliver was, you know, vainglorious or, or was, um, he was feathering his own nest that, you know, a great lightning bolt would come and strike him down. So I, I actually, I mean, I think he's a complicated character and I think nobody is, you know, no one's all good, no all bad. And I don't really believe in heroes and villains, but I think there's, there's a lot to sympathize with him about um, but there are real limits to it because you know there is there are things that he did which were both in Ireland and in terms of reform of the church and so on, which clearly embody a view that's very difficult for us to get comfortable with now, which is that there are better sorts of people who deserve who deserve freedom and there are other people who deserve to be crushed. And that's quite, you know, that's quite definitive. Now, some regicides uh, lost their lives in, in the wake of the restoration. And in in your feature for uh, the magazine, you describe how John Bradshaw's corpse was exhumed and his decaying toes snapped off and sold as souvenirs. Um which is quite the image. Um, but how, yeah. how hell-bent was Charles II on revenge following the Restoration? Well, really not at all. Um, and I, I think it's a really interesting thing. I've worked quite a lot on Charles II, but in the later years, so it was very interesting for me, um, you know, seeing him, uh, he's still a very young man, and he was remarkably, you know, given that his father had been executed and, you know, his, his, everything that he was kind of part of had been, had been completely done away with. He, he was the one who said, you know, I've, there's, there's been too much hanging already. I, I want it to be about what happens in the future, not what's happened in the past. And the, the business of, um, that you describe, in, uh, which, is, which is very gruesome, of digging up the dead bodies of Oliver Cromwell, John Bradshaw and Henry Ireton and dragging them up to Tyburn and executing executing the corpses was, of course, incredibly gruesome. But, of course, they were already dead. So as far as, you know, how um, actually, um, you know, destructive and violent it was... Um, it was a pretty, it was a pretty easy win. Everyone cheered and clapped and was delighted. Meanwhile, you know, that no lives were lost. Now, other people were executed, um, but given what had happened, um, the numbers who were executed were really very small. Um, and you know, given that you know, scores of people had signed Charles the first death warrant. Um, lots of those, you know, never got near a gallows. The Richard Cromwell, Henry Cromwell, lived out quiet lives, you know, pottering around as gentlemen um, farmers doing their own thing. Um, John Lambert, who was one of the big figures, big Republican figures, absolutely opposed to the uh, restoration, led a great armed attempt to prevent it, Um, was in prison for life, but wasn't executed. And one of the things that's really interesting about actually both the way the Republicans themselves behaved and the way that Charles II and his coterie behaved in 1660 is how little 
comparatively executing and you know decapitating and hang drawing and quartering really goes on. I mean, if you compare it to the middle of the 16th century, where it's you know it's happening hand over fist, um, it's it's there's far less. And I think so. Charles II and General Monk and those around him were really committed to trying to draw a line under it all and say, you know, this is this is a new age now. Uh, and and to an extent, Charles II's um, attempt to do that was stymied. Um, by his own supporters. So all of the those um, cavaliers who'd been in exile during the 1650s were very unhappy that, you know, why are we forgiving these people? Look what they did to us. Look what they did to your father. Um, and it's it's they when there's an election in 1661 and it's called the Cavalier Parliament for good reason because it's absolutely stuffed with um, with people who, who, who were cavaliers um, start to, um, as it were, water down or... Uh, the, the kind of concessions that Charles I had been Charles II had been very keen to make in terms of having a broader church, allowing more people to worship in slightly different ways, and 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 that the full extent of the kind of clemency and the compromise that Charles II was very keen on never was really realised because it was prevented by Parliament, which is a kind of funny irony in itself. And finally, Anna, of, of all the things that you learned while researching uh, for your book, what surprised you the most? Well, one of the things that I really loved about working on this decade is that, you know, we all have this idea of the, you know, the Cromwellian era, as it's often thought of, as being, you know, incredibly sort of bleak and um, you know, full of Christmas being cancelled and soldiers marching around and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, of course, uh, you know, the theatres were all closed and so on. And, of course, all those things, you know, happen to some one extent or another. But human beings are human beings. And one of the things that I loved learning about in working on this book and I and and the book really tries to bring out is how much um how much fun was had, how much entertainment was enjoyed, you know, how many jokes were told during this decade, in spite of all this stuff going on. Um, you know, this is the and that to an extent the 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 kind of prohibitions, if you like, the 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 rules that prevented some things from happening were precisely what gave gave an incentive to come up with new ways of doing stuff. So an example of that is the theatres were closed because they were seen as being places where royalist plotting was likely to happen. So that the impresarios who kind of you know want to want to find something new to offer to the public um, come up with this idea that we ought to import this thing they're doing in Italy, which is called opera. You know, it's not theatre; it's music and you know dancing and and a bit of a story. And so suddenly, and and so that's all right. So it's in 1658. It's right in the middle of this period that the first opera is performed in Covent Garden. It's a massive hit, and everyone goes to see it. The first coffee houses open in 1651, and by the end of the decade there's one on every corner of the west end of london so and people men start wearing wigs women start wearing these cosmetic patches that we think of now people are reading the newspapers so to me one of the things that's so interesting about it is the sheer kind of energy of the age and how it isn't it isn't a given that because some things are prescribed that therefore everything becomes very um, bleak and you know limited. Actually, it's almost the opposite. Because there are prescriptions, it forces people to do things differently, and that brings innovation and and change and and a kind of excitement of its own. That was Anarchy, the Restless Republic, Britain without a Crown, is out now, published by William Collins. You can read a feature by Anna on the Interregnum in the April issue of BBC History Magazine. 
That's on sale now and also includes features on Napoleon, Churchill, Mary Seacole and Easter Island. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.